Well, in the last couple of weeks, we've begun to share a vision of what we believe God is calling us to as a church in the next few years. Um, some of you may have been at an event we had a couple of weeks ago on Sunday night where in conjunction with our annual meeting, we shared what we call forecast, a vision for the future. And some of you may have these little booklets. If you don't, we'd uh, just invite you to pick one up out in the lobby. Um, it's an opportunity for you to learn more about how we're thinking about the future. And you, you, you look, we can look back because we have almost 12 years of history as a church, 11 and a half or so, and God's done some great things among us, but we're really convinced that our best days are still ahead. And the future, we believe, is going to be shaped by four values. Those values are invited into a relationship with Jesus Christ, to belong to a community of love, to become more like Jesus, and to serve others sacrificially in the name of Jesus. And so last week, we talked about the first two of these, the first value of invite, and that is that we believe, we really believe that everyone who was far from God would be better off if they had a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that means receiving the invitation that Jesus offers to each of us and then extending the invitation that Jesus offers us to others. The second value we talked about last week is the value of belonging, that one of our greatest needs as human beings is for community, to be in relationship with others. And so we're called to experience Christian community. Community is what we most deeply need, especially in our difficult times in life, a place where our brokenness is met, not with judgment, but with compassion and grace and forgiveness. And then in turn, to extend Christian love to others. That is, as we have experienced comfort in our own lives, we can then extend that comfort to others. Which brings us then to the third of the four values, the first of the two that I want to highlight today, and that is to become. The idea here is that just as knowing Christ brings peace and meaning and hope for eternity, so following Jesus Christ wholeheartedly is to discover that he alone is the one who deeply satisfies our most important longings, transforms our most persistent failings, and heals our deepest pain. So you have to ask the question, who wouldn't want abiding peace and a heart filled with love? The kind of faith that sees everything, even our failings and disappointments, in the light of God's amazing grace. The kind of hope that uh, endures despite discouraging circumstances. The place where we can find freedom from sin and the power to do what is right. To be liberated from loneliness and anxiety and fear and to flourish and to become the kind of people that God wants us to be. Well, we all want that. And in short, that's the abundant life that Jesus came to bring to each one of us. That's why we want to do all we can to help everyone to become more like Christ, a process that will not be fully complete until Jesus returns, but begins by trusting Jesus. If Jesus is the wisest, most loving person who ever lived, the one who has extended grace, hope, and forgiveness to each one of us, would we not be willing to surrender our lives to Jesus Christ? That would mean, though, that we have to have an openness to change, an understanding that the process of becoming closer to Jesus Christ will mean transformation for each one of us. To do that, we need to spend time with God, and as we have said, do it with friends. That is, to practice the daily habit, the daily discipline of spending time reading the Bible and praying, and then building in also the habit of doing that with others. So how will we know that kind of transformation has taken place? Well, our purpose statement is to love God and love others. And if that transformation is taking place, what it means is that we will be growing in our love for God and our love for others. So I want to give you an example of that from the history of the early Christian church. There are a series of dramatic stories in a book that we call Acts. It's a history of the church that was written by a man named Luke. 
And in Acts chapters 3 and 4, he describes a series of events that end in a really interesting way. Now, the story starts with Peter and John. Um, They meet a beggar, a man who had been unable to walk from birth, and the man asked Peter and John for money. This is something that he did regularly to everybody who walked into the temple. But instead of giving him money, Peter healed him. and says that the people were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Peter then took the opportunity to tell the crowd about Jesus. So he said, you know, listen, I'm not the one who's healed him. The power that has gone out from me comes from God. And then he told them the good news about Jesus Christ and invited them, our first value, into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And Luke tells us that more than 5,000 people decided that day to be followers of Jesus. Now that made the religious authorities in the nation a little anxious, a little angry actually, and so they brought Peter and John in for questioning. And what we're told in the story is that they were pretty bold, pretty courageous. They didn't back down. In fact, the authorities were impressed. So at the end, or toward the the end of this story in Acts chapter four, it says this. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Now, unschooled here doesn't mean that they were stupid. It just simply meant they had not been to rabbinical school. They hadn't been to the highest schools in the land. And so the authorities who were interrogating them, initially at least, looked down on them. And ordinary doesn't mean that they were dumb, but that they were amateurs. They weren't professional religious leaders. But there was something that they could not deny. It was a powerful way of what they were able to do and what they were able to say. So in the end, the only explanation the religious leaders could think of, and it's one that they didn't really want to admit, and that is that Peter and John had been with Jesus. That's the only way that they could explain what had happened there, that Jesus had taught them, he showed them how to act, he'd helped them grow in skills and character. It all rubbed off, and it resulted in them having remarkable power. You have to ask the question, what would it be like for us if we too spent time with Jesus in a way that led to our lives being remarkable, not because of the, we went to the right schools or had the right resumes, but because there was something about us that could only be explained by our relationship with Jesus Christ. So what does it look like if we have this kind of power in our lives? What does it look like and how can we become more like Jesus Christ? Now, at the forecast event we had a couple of weeks ago, one of the things I did is I listed a a series of things that we're thinking about, programs and ministries and different kinds of things that we want to do to help you grow in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you want to listen to those, you can go back. The podcast is online, um, and you can hear more about what we are thinking about doing. But what I want to talk about more today is the value that's behind these, about spending time with God. I became a Christian when I was in sixth grade, sometime in the spring of the year. I don't know exactly when, but during that time, there were a series of events, and um, God was at work in my life, and I decided that I needed to follow Jesus Christ. And that summer, my parents sent me to a camp, a church camp, for the very first time. And my counselor was a college student named Phil. Now, I have to tell you, he was a bit nerdy. He played the clarinet. He practiced every afternoon in our cabin. Um, But he cared about us. And, you know, that may not sound all that remarkable, except remember, we were middle school age boys. Okay, there's a special gift from God that that comes only to those who are able to love middle school boys. Some of you are middle school parents, parents of middle school age boys, and you know exactly that that requires something special. Well, one day, though, Phil challenged me personally to do something that I'd never really thought about doing before. He suggested that I begin reading the Bible for myself. 
Now, I had watched my parents do this, but I thought that the Bible was for adults. I didn't think that it was for middle school age boys like me. But he suggested that I start with one of the biographies of Jesus that uh, you can find in the New Testament. Now, earlier that year, my grandmother had given me a Bible in a more modern English translation. Um, If you're old enough, you may remember there was a version called the King James Bible. If you read it, it's like reading Shakespeare or worse. It's very hard to understand. And my grandmother gave me this Bible. And so when I got back home, I decided, you know what, I'm going to start reading. And I followed Phil's advice. I went to the New Testament, and I started with the book of Matthew. And you can look at this if you like afterwards, but I started underlining and writing in the margins. I only made it through Matthew, but I did make it through Matthew, and it was the beginning of something that over time would become a habit in my life. I started to read. Now, what Phil was getting at when he wanted me or encouraged me to do this is that we need to pursue Jesus intentionally. It's not something that just happens by accident. Now, I have to tell you, just to sort of be candid here, that a church like City Church can help. If you attend regularly here, if you get involved here, it will help you to grow. But ultimately, you're going to need to take responsibility for your own spiritual growth, for your own relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why I would encourage you to begin the habit of spending time with God. Now, if you've never done it before, here's what I usually suggest. Start with 10 or 15 minutes. Most Bibles today are divided in paragraphs. In fact, the Pew Bibles are an example of that. Um, they have little headings. Sometimes they only, uh, only 10 or 12 verses, sometimes a little longer. If you start with those sections and you spend a few minutes reading, asking, what do you think it's saying, meaning and saying to you? Uh, and then spend some time praying, asking God to put into practice what you've read, uh, bringing the concerns and things that are in your lives that maybe are troubling you or troubling someone else. Take 10 or 15 minutes and do that. Now, you may find that you want to spend more time. I I spend typically about 30 minutes in the morning, Monday to Friday. That's what works for me. Um, But if you begin to build that daily habit, it will have a transformative effect on your life. This week, I had a phone conversation with someone that I've known for a little over a decade. And um, five years ago, he moved to Texas. We've stayed in touch, and we talk several times a year. And when we talked this week, I was struck by something that I have uh, actually been um, sort of struck by the last few times that we talked, and that is that he's a different person than the man I met about 10 years ago. Back then, he was anxious and discouraged. Uh, he wasn't sure what he believed or even, even, even if he even believed at all. Uh, he faced a couple of personal crises in his life that almost undid him. And in the beginning, a lot of our conversations were around helping him to understand what it meant to invite Jesus to be a part of his life. And then I encouraged him to begin reading the Bible, and at first he didn't do it, he kind of resisted it, Um, but over time he started. And when he moved to Texas, I encouraged him to find a church, to get into a small group, and to continue reading the Bible. And when we talked this week, he amazed me by telling me that this year he had decided to read through the whole Bible. So now it's, you know, it's October, and I said, so how's it going? He said, I'm on track. I think I'm gonna finish by the end of the year. That's really hardcore to read the whole Bible in a year. But it has made a difference in his life. He is a different person. A timid, anxious man has grown in confidence. He's now part of a ministry that works with prison inmates. Um, He writes letters every week to prisoners who are part of that program. He's volunteering with four-year-olds in his church on Sunday morning. And he told me with, with excitement and joy about a conversation he'd had just about a week ago with a cousin of his who's spiritually seeking. She lives in a different town and she's invited him to visit just so they can continue that conversation. 
transformation in his life has been remarkable. Now, the point is, is that if you do all of these things, you will be a different person. You'll have wisdom that you don't currently have. You'll have perspective that you once lacked. You may find that your values and beliefs begin to be transformed. So you no longer want to do what you once did or behave the way that you used to behave or want what you used to want. And you'll find your heart growing in generosity and concern for the needs of others. Which brings us to the last of the four values that we have outlined in this forecast vision. And that is to serve. As those who've experienced the love and grace of God, what we now have, if we follow Jesus closely, is the desire to serve others, to be messengers of the good news of Jesus Christ, to be agents of mercy and advocates for justice, to be generous people seeking the peace and reconciliation with all. Now, we live in a world with lots of needs. In fact, it's easy to become overwhelmed and to feel guilty because we really can't do enough. In fact, you think anything that I do will hardly make a difference. But just because we can't do everything doesn't mean that we can't do something. And just because we can't do something extraordinary doesn't mean that we can't make a difference. I've quoted Mother Teresa before, but she has famously said that not all of us can do great things, but each one of us can do um, small things with great love. And that's really the first part of this serve vision. That is to do ordinary things with great love. And the idea is really not to think about some grand vision, although God may lead some of you in that direction, but to simply think of those that you're connected to right now who have spiritual, physical, and emotional needs and think about what you could do to meet those needs. And it may be really simple, like bringing a meal or watching kids or helping with a project or hanging out and listening to someone. And when you hear about a challenge, maybe just offering to pray. Now, even if the things that God often asks of us are very ordinary, it still requires something of us. It means that we will have to do something, and that may mean making sacrifices. Now, what that ultimately means is learning to live as generous people. As God is generous with us, so too we can be generous with others in the way we give our time, our skills, and our money. Let me give you an example of this from a story that Jesus once told. And the story began with a lawyer. He was a religious leader, a particular kind of lawyer, who specialized in religious law. He was a part theologian and part ethicist in the day. And he came, it says, to Jesus, and the reason he came was to test Jesus. Now, this wasn't a genuine question that he had. What he was trying to do was to trap Jesus, to get him to say something, a little soundbite that might discredit him. But he asked Jesus, he said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus didn't answer him. In fact, Jesus just said, well, what do you think? And the man gave a uh, Sunday school answer. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because that's where we get the purpose statement for City Church, love God, love others. That was his answer. And Jesus said, you're right. But it says that the man wanted to justify himself. And so he asked the question, who is my neighbor? In other words, in the love God, love others formula, he says, who are the others? Now, why did he ask that? Well, the answer is, he wanted Jesus to define the limits of love. He wanted to know who he didn't have to love, not who he had to love. He figured that the clothes who were closest to him would be the ones that he should love, but he wanted to know where that stopped. Was it a bleeding heart liberal or a heartless conservative? 
Was it the gay activist or the guy who drives the Hummer? Was it Muslims or Packers fans? He just wanted to know where it was that he had to provide a limit. It's an us versus them question. Jesus, though, doesn't answer the question directly. Instead, he tells a story. And it's a familiar story. He tells about a man who was walking on a dangerous road. It was a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It went down to a city that was below it in elevation. Um, I've walked part of that road, and when when you're there, you realize how dangerous it really was. It's a winding cavern, um, a lot of twists and turns, a lot of caves, a lot of little places that, that someone could hide. And so it's easy to see how dangerous it was. And what happened is a man became wounded. A man, and we're not given a lot of details, but he was attacked by robbers. Those robbers stripped him of his clothes. They beat him, they ran away, and they left him half dead. Now, we're not told details about the man himself. We're not told his ethnicity, his destination, his social and economic status, his spiritual state. We don't know if he was foolish to walk the road. Uh, maybe this was in the middle of the day. Maybe it was in the early morning or at dusk. We don't know. But all we know is that he was attacked, he was beaten, he was robbed, and he was left for dead. You wonder, why, why didn't Jesus give a few more details? That's the one thing here. We know the ethnicity of everybody else in the story. Why didn't he give us that detail at least? And I believe that the reason is, is that Jesus wanted to be purposely ambiguous. To the lawyer, the details were essential. He wanted to know where he should stop loving. To Jesus, they defined, they were irrelevant, that, that detail was irrelevant. What he's saying to this man is that a neighbor is any human being in need, not just limited to your tribe or to those even who were deserving. It's everyone. The story continues when he tells that there were two people who walked by. Both were widely respected and admired. They were expected, if you heard the story the first time, to be the heroes of the story. And so you wonder why Jesus tells this story in a way that shows them just walking by on the other side. Maybe they feared, some have thought, Uh, that uh, they might become ritually impure by touching a dead man. Maybe they were afraid the wounded man wasn't actually wounded, that he was a robber who pretended to be that so that he would grab them and rob them. Uh, Maybe they were just too busy, we're not told. But the main reason appears to be, in Jesus' way of telling the story, is their lack of compassion. They came, they saw, and then they passed by on the other side of the road. But there is one that showed mercy, It's a man that Jesus identifies as a Samaritan, an outcast, someone who was hated and despised. Good Jews would have nothing to do with Samaritans. They would avoid them. In fact, the most direct route from the north to the south of the country, or the south to the north of the country, was through an area that was called Samaria. Good Jews would take a longer route around that to avoid walking through Samaria. What happens here is, uh, by the way, we call this story the story of the Good Samaritan, which actually, for those who heard this story, would have been an oxymoron. There was no such thing in their minds as a Good Samaritan. So no one expected this man to be the hero of the story. He faced the same dangers that the priest and the Levite faced, and yet it says, when he saw him, he took pity on him. So the last person that you would have ever expected to stop is the one who stops and helps. And Jesus finishes the story by asking a question. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? And the lawyer was, he was caught. He he had no other way to answer than to say, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus looked at him and said, go and do likewise. Now, the standard interpretation of this story is a moralistic tale, a parable about the idea that if we see someone in the ditch, we should help them. 
The only way to be saved really ultimately is to become a social worker. And the result of that is guilt. Now, an expanded uh, moral of the story is that is the wickedness of racial and religious prejudice. And let me just say that both are true. Both the moral and the racial ethnic piece are true, but they're not the main point because Jesus was not just addressing actions. He knew and they knew that everyone was to have compassion on those who had need and to do something about it. But what Jesus wanted to get at was the motivation of their hearts. The lawyer wanted to define a commandment by finding out what made it doable, how to limit it so that it was easier for him to do. He wanted to limit the concept of neighbor and Jesus expanded it and said it's anyone in need. And he wanted to make certain that they understood that this was a hard attitude, not just something they did out of compulsion, not to burden us with guilt that we can never get rid of, but to help us to develop new hearts, not to find the limits of love, but to have hearts overflowing with love. And the point here is that the love and grace that we've experienced from God, particularly through, the, through Jesus Christ, is something that we can extend to others. That generosity comes out of a response to the love and grace that we've experienced from God. Now, the challenge here is to emulate the Good Samaritan, to show God's love in tangible ways, to allow our hearts to be changed by God and to live that out and to do what Jesus tells us to do, and that is to go and do likewise. Now, the practical part of all of this, both the vision that we have as a church in this story, is how can we put this into practice? And again, a couple of weeks ago, we gave you a number of suggestions, a number of different ways that we're hoping together we can serve sacrificially in the name of Jesus. One way, for example, is to serve with one of our ministry partners, and many of you do that on a regular basis. But I want to talk not about specifics, but I want to talk about an attitude, something that has begun to emerge, a theme that is embedded in this idea of serving others sacrificially, and that is the theme of relationships. This year, it's become increasingly evident that our nation is a divided nation. We're divided by race, by class, by economic inequality, by ethnicity, by differences in views around controversial issues, everything from human sexuality on. And we've started to pray as a church about how we can minister across these divides. And I have to tell you candidly, we don't have a program, we don't have a ministry in mind, we haven't been able to think of what exactly we should do, at least as a church as a whole. But one thing that does seem clear is something that is simple in one sense and difficult in another, and that is that maybe each one of us can commit to reach out and build a relationship with one person across one of those divides. Imagine what it would look like if each one of us were to build a friendship with someone who's different from us, someone who doesn't look like us, wasn't born where we were born, doesn't earn what we earn, someone who doesn't live where we live, and maybe even someone we disagree with on some very substantial issue. And despite all those differences, to reach out and make a personal connection, to understand that person's reality, to hear their story, to learn their hopes and dreams and hurts and disappointments, not in a patronizing way, not coming in as some kind of savior, but as those committed to humbly listen and to understand. In some ways, it's really easy to write a check. You just write a check, you send it in, and that's the end of it. But it's hard to build a relationship. It takes time, it takes courage, it may require sacrifices, it may make us or put us in places that we feel uncomfortable, we may have to be vulnerable in ways that we're not used to be vulnerable. And we may find, this may horrify some of us, that we may have to change some of the attitudes and beliefs that we have about the way the world works, perhaps in radical ways. 
What's interesting about this story of the Good Samaritan is the way that Jesus wove into the story the issues of race and ethnic divisions because Jesus' day was no different than ours. In fact, maybe it was worse. When asked what it meant to love your neighbor, Jesus defined it so broadly that he even included their enemies. There's a famous quote of St. Paul's that addresses the divide that existed in his day, and he says this in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now listen, here's the point. He doesn't say you are equal in Christ Jesus, even though that's true. He says you are one. That means the emphasis in here, here isn't on equality. The emphasis is on unity. He wants them to be one in Jesus Christ. Dr. Martin Luther King had a dream, a dream of unity, not of division, a dream that came from the Bible. One of the places that he probably got that vision, at least in part, is from something that John, one of Jesus' closest friends, wrote. It was a vision that John had of the future, the future when Jesus returns. And in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, John shares the vision that God gave him. He says this, he said, I looked and there before me was a great multitude, no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our Lord, our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's a vision of the future, one that can inspire us. To see a world where people who are now separated by all sorts of differences can be brought together as one in Christ Jesus. The man who cuts our family's hair is from Africa. Uh, Ian was 11 or 12 when his family fled from Uganda in the middle of the night to escape Idi Amin's army. Um, by the way, the reason I ended up going there is my wife started and then she was not happy with my haircuts at Great Clips and so she negotiated a deal with Ian to cut my hair as well and then my daughter sits, all of us now. But Ian started as just a boy in a refugee camp and eventually he made his way to Germany then to the UK and then when he was 19 years old came here to the Twin Cities because his brother had already arrived. I've been seeing Ian every three to four weeks for um, probably 12 or 13 years, and so we've become friends. In July, the day after Philando Castile was uh, uh, killed in Falcon Heights, I had a haircut. And when I arrived that day, I could tell that Ian was rattled. And so we talked, and I asked him about his own experiences here in Minnesota, living as a black man in Minnesota, about the experiences of his 18-year-old son, now a college freshman at St. Thomas and I got to tell you, I can't pretend to understand or emotionally connect with everything in Ian's reality. But in the last few months, we've had some significant conversations about some really important issues. There are a lot of ways to do this whole deal of relationship. A few weeks ago, I had a phone conversation with someone I know who is directly involved in Minnesota politics, and he is on one side of the divide and very clearly there. But he told me that for the last few years, he's been part of a group of people who are coming from both sides of the conversation, both sides of the political divide together to have conversation. And I thought, wow, good for you. The good news that Jesus came to bring is one that restores broken relationships, our broken relationship with God and our broken relationships with one another. Now, we're not gonna be able to fix everything, but if each one of us could build a relationship across one of those divides, imagine what God could do. 
Now, the forecast vision we've been talking about is one that we believe will animate our lives as a faith community over the coming years. And a couple of weeks ago, again, I shared a list of programs and ideas, and I hope maybe if you weren't able to be there that night, you might go online and find the podcast and listen to some of what we shared that evening. I'm excited about all of those programs and all those ideas and all those ministries, but even more, I'm excited about the values that are behind them that invite us into a relationship with Jesus. And like the story that we shared last week about Andrew, an ordinary disciple of him, of Jesus, who invited people to meet him on a regular basis, to belong to a community of love. And like the story that we told last week about a woman who came who was on the outskirts of society, but one that Jesus invited in, that we might too invite others in to community. And to become more like Jesus, like Jesus' earliest disciples, to spend time with Jesus and allow him to change their lives in powerful ways. And then to serve others sacrificially in the name of Jesus, following the example of this story that Jesus told about a Samaritan man who reached out to serve others, that we might do the same thing and befriend those who need our help and love, especially those who are very different from us. That's a vision that requires some work and sacrifice and maybe... It will require a lot more from us, but it's one that we believe God is calling each one of us to together to do this in the coming years. Let's pray. Father, uh, we are grateful for your son, Jesus Christ. We've already sung today about um, the, the love and grace and mercy that you have given us through him. And we are invited into a relationship with your son, Jesus, invited into a relationship with you through him. And then, Father, you invite us into a community of love, knowing that we are relational people created by you to be in community. And then you invite us to become more like your son, Jesus Christ, and then to serve others sacrificially, not out of guilt or duty, but out of gratitude for what you've done. We pray that that would characterize our lives individually and together as a community. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.